you're very welcome to the Fun and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Derby. This episode marks a departure from everything that has come before on the pod, representing as it does a first attempt on my behalf to try something just a little different. Regular listeners or indeed readers of my Substack blog may remember that I visited the Netherlands for a spot of golf in the early weeks of June 2023. Golf in Holland was something that had always been on my radar for quite a few years. However, somewhere else or something else always seemed to attract my attention. In hindsight, an argument could certainly be made as to how misguided I was. Anyway, enough introspection this morning. Thankfully, no impediments or obstacles intervened this past summer. So off I toddled on a five-day whistle-stop tour through Ormello, Utrecht, Den Haag, Zandvoort, Noordwijk and Hilversum. I managed to see a good bit. However, thankfully there is quite a bit more to see. So, most conversations with fellow golfers, either before or after the trip, were often accompanied by quizzical looks or shakes of the head, followed in short order by Golf in the Netherlands, really? Or would you not just go to Spain or Portugal instead? Now, the answers to those questions are yes, indeed, golf in the Netherlands. And, you know, you could go to the Iberian Peninsula. But if you do, you might be missing out. So, needless to say, the trip inspired me to delve a bit deeper into golf in the low countries. And this aforementioned delving has inspired me to create a docupod series of episodes focused on golf in the Netherlands. It's probably useful at this point to give you a little taster as to what you can expect from this series. So this episode that we're on right now will focus on the here and now of Golf and Netherlands. With the help of a few friends of the podcast, we'll answer questions such as course numbers, participation levels and popularity, golf and Holland's relative merit in comparison to good or great golf elsewhere, what you should, should expect in terms of what's on offer, where to consider going, how to approach booking around, and indeed some other observations that you may find helpful. The next episode, indeed episode two, will focus on the grounds for golf in the low countries, what they are and how they've materialised from a geological and historical perspective. Episode three will focus on early golf, looking at the effect that migration, colonisation, war, politics and trade had both early golf in the Netherlands and indeed across the North Sea in Scotland. Episode 4 will look at golf between World War I and World War II and indeed the aftermath of World War II, specifically focused on fascinating stories about golf at the Wild Farm near The Hague and Kenmore Golf and Country Club in Zandvoort. Over the course of Episode 5, we intend to look at Dutch golf course development since the 1970s. Episode 6 really takes a recent Philip Truitt quotation about history and heritage, which goes a little something like this. Tradition is not the worship of ashes, but the preservation of the fire. In light of that particular quotation, which did resonate quite a lot with me, 
we're going to explore how the Dutch do things a little bit different in terms of how history and heritage plays into governance and decision making. Finally, episode 7 will focus on sustainable golf course management and the inevitable and inexorable requirement for golfers to understand the difference between turf perfect for golf and perfect turf. But we're also looking at the anatomy of a possible sustainably focused renovation at Nordevike Golf Club. My hope is that by delving a bit deeper, I can broaden our respective knowledge bases while also doing my bit for the promotion of golf in the Netherlands. So this first episode is meant as a relatively gentle introduction to golf in Holland. It will include various observations, pointers and experiences from my recent visit. In an effort to augment the content somewhat, and indeed to provide you with something slightly more interesting to listen to, I managed to snag a number of friends to the pod. Mike Clayton is the first one who will talk about his experience of Dutch golf. He first encountered Dutch golf, the Dutch Open, in 1980, and will go on to play in 13 straight Dutch Opens. Clayton's design partner, Frank Pont, also makes a quick appearance. In addition to some sage words from both George Waters and Jasper Miners. But before we hear from some of our contributors, it's probably useful to provide you, the listener, with a little bit more substantive background. So the National Golf Federation of the Netherlands were very kind to recently provide me with a current snapshot of the game of golf in the Netherlands in 2023. Currently, there are 250 golf courses with 270 affiliated golf clubs. You may well ask, why is there a discrepancy between clubs and courses? Well, I asked exactly the same question. It's as a result of the existence of a number of virtual clubs. Members of these clubs will hold handicaps online and play their golf on the 250 golf courses. In fact, they may even have a small discounted rate at some participating golf clubs. So you're probably wondering, or maybe wondering, what sort of sites for golf are in Netherlands? So there's Lynx, there's Heathland, there's Forest, and there's Polder. So uh, the Lynx may be a surprise to some people, but I can assure you there are some great links there. Listeners will undoubtedly be able to visualize three of the four types of grounds for golf that I just mentioned. The one which may be new to you, unless, of course, you're Dutch, is likely to be Polder, on which quite a lot of the courses find their home. So just so I don't leave you hanging, a quick definition of Polderland is probably useful. Polders are large land and water areas fully surrounded by dikes where the ground elevation is situated below mean sea level and the water table within the polder is controlled by engineers. About 50% of the overall land and water mass of the Netherlands is situated in polders. These polders are always below the mean sea level. 
So a common theme of the best courses in the Netherlands and indeed around the world is the existence of a sandy site from which the original course was hewn. Friend of the pod, George Waters, wrote a book called Sand and Golf back in 2013. He joined me as a guest in episode 11, during which he explained why sandy sites very often present the best raw material from a golf course design and build perspective. Here's George. I was always interested in how important sand was for really great golf course architecture. It's something that obviously had struck me working on Lynx courses, spending time in Dornoch, reading the writings by Tom Doak and Alistair McKenzie that really highlighted how important sandy soil was for golf. And then working with Tom, you know, he was having all of his greatest success on sandy sites. I mean, he's done some great golf courses on non-sandy sites as well, but he certainly hammered home to me that if we can be working on a sandy site, that's where we want to be because we're going to have better conditions. The architecture is easier. The creative process is more fluid. Everything about it, construction process is simpler. Everything about it is, is more the way that we want to work for these reasons. And, and so it was something that I was always interested in. In my master's thesis year, I wrote my master's thesis in graduate school about golf courses and coastal dune environments because I was I was really interested in the topic. And you know, certainly some of my advisors would accuse me of having crafted that topic as an excuse to go to Scotland and Ireland to spend two and a half months studying Lynx golf courses. So I did a lot of research in that area during that time and became more intrigued with, you know, not only the golf elements of it, but thinking about fitting a golf course into a broader environmental context and finding ways to do that and finding ways to make it fit and finding ways to respect the environmental processes that are going on all around the course, integrate them into the course, you know, avoid a golf course being a disruption to the processes and, and allow it to kind of incorporate the processes and, you know, in a perfect world, enhance them and preserve, you know, valuable environmental resources that are out there. I think that golf courses should be doing all of that. And, you know, thinking about sand and golf kind of got me thinking about all of those bigger picture things. But it really started because I was fascinated by courses on sandy ground. I had been to Lynx courses and Heathland courses and, you know, some of the great sandy sites around the U.S. and had connected the dots that I'd been to Melbourne, you know, had connected the dots that, hey, sand is a common denominator in a lot of this. What is it about it that makes it so special? So one thing that, that amused me, or surprised me really, I suppose, was that in the early 1960s, there were only 20 golf clubs in the Netherlands with approximately three and a half thousand members. Fast forward to 2023, and there are currently 415,000 golfers registered in the Netherlands, with golf officially being the fourth most popular sport from a participation perspective. Only football, or soccer for our North American friends, tennis, fishing are classified as having more participants. Another thing which was useful to uh, remind myself is most golfers in continental Europe, before they start playing, must pass a standardized golf ability test or golf licensing 
both practical and written. This practice has been in place in the Netherlands since the 1980s and measures competency across three distinct areas. An understanding of the rules of golf, an awareness of on-course etiquette, and playing ability. So in addition to the golf license, many clubs in the Netherlands may also have a minimum handicap requirement to ensure safety and speed of play. This golf license really does sound like something that recalcitrant golfers fail to rake, repair or keep up with play really should be threatened with. A jest, obviously. Or do I? So if you're coming from farther afield and are considering a trip to the Netherlands, you might look at bundling your trip with golf in northern France, Paris and Belgium for easier or wider canvas. Probably useful to get an elevator pitch from a local friend of the pod, Frank Pont, of CDP and Infinite Variety Golf Design. And why you might forgo Ireland, Scotland, the Algarve or Costa del Sol for a golf trip to the Netherlands and perhaps some of the adjoining countries. Typically speaking, the top 25 courses would be interesting for everybody to play. And, and they're, you know, as I said, they're all on the West. Most of them are accessible. Even the, call it the more exclusive and private ones are accessible if you call and write the secretary beforehand. You know, we have two courses that are in the top 100 of the world, Royal Hague and Depan. Both of them are cold courses. If you manage to get onto them, they're worth the money to pay for them and to play. And then I would say there, there are another 10, 15 courses that are really worth your time. Look at the cookie jar movies that they've made recently. I mean, I'm, that will give you a good sense. They played four of the top courses, uh, or was it five? I think it was four. Um, Royal Hague, De Pan, Eindhoven, Nordweg, Canada. No, they played five. And, you know, all of them are in the top 20 of Europe. All of them welcome visitors. So it's easy logistically. It's a country that speaks English perfectly. The prices have gone up because people do read what it costs to play some of the top courses in the UK. And unfortunately, they have gone up tremendously. You know, I would say uh, it's worth it. And it's been worth it for a long time. I mean, I remember the first visitor I had was Tom Dunn, a journalist who wrote for Golf and Traveler, a very good writer. He visited already in 2007 or something to just say why people should make the trip to the Netherlands. I mean, the other trip is to Paris. There are a number of really good golf courses around Paris. And those are the two trips that I would advise. Also the trip to, I guess, to Le Touquet, Hartlow, Beldune, which is on the coast, which is very easy for anybody who lives in the south of England. I mean, what you should do is there's a, I think it's in Dutch, I think it might be translated, top 50 list of Dutch courses. Anything that's top 30 of that, go and play. You, you won't be disappointed. You'll, you'll have fun. So just to recap on what Frank said there, Royal Hague and Utrecht de Pan are currently ranked in the world top 100. Two seriously good golf courses. Canemar Golf and Country Club in Zandvoort is not too far behind in my opinion. Very much reminded me of Royal Burkdale with fairway movement. The land at Nordvike, which is beside Zandvoort Dutch Grand Prix track is probably the best available for golf in the Netherlands. Huge contrast can be found amongst the three distinct playing areas of the valley, hillside and the lakes forest. Golf in Holland is 
fortunate to count Harry Colt and his partners Charles Allison and John Morrison amongst its early influences. Before we hear from Evaluating as Jasper Miners, it's probably useful to linger with intent in an effort to flesh out Colt's wider importance to the game of golf. So his influence on the growth of the game was both direct through new courses and revisions of pre-existing layouts to record operation. This influence stretched around the world, from the UK and Ireland to North America, Spain, France, the Netherlands and Germany. Indirectly, his wider influence was exercised through local and international partnerships with the likes of Alan McKenzie, Charles Hugh Allison, John Morrison and Donald Ross. The Colt & Co. back catalogue includes world-renowned courses such as Pine Valley, Muirfield, Swinley Forest, Sunningdale Old & New, Utrecht the Pan, Canamar, Royal Hague, Ilverson, Toxandria, St George's Hill, Wentworth, Aberdavi, the Eden Course of St Andrews, Formby, Rye, Royal Liverpool, Royal Port Call, Kasumigaseki Country Club at Hirono in Japan, to name but a handful. Friend of the Pod Jasper Miners can now expand upon the legacies that Colt and its design partners and contemporary architects have left the golfing world. Harry Colt's just standard, the quality that he was able to reach with regards to his work is unbelievable. Um, and I had never been to a Harry Colt golf course that, that I didn't think was great. I mean, it, it's so true. A good, a good routing can make a massive difference. I think the common thread between a lot of these early strategic golf course architects, if you want to call it that way, Harry Colt, Abercrombie, J.F. Abercrombie, um, they were essentially working with Willie Park Jr. So they were taking his, his routings um, and then doing things like uh, bunker placement and greens. So what had essentially been established was the, the skeleton or the bones of a lot of these golf courses. And then this idea of taking the, the rugged nature as opposed to almost as a juxtaposition against the, the, the Victorian way of introducing hazards to a golf course and almost trying to incorporate a, a natural looking hazard, which was for all intents and purposes, just as artificial as, as any Victorian or penal hazard, just done in a manner that had a bit of, of art as opposed to just simply a utilitarian purpose. And then I think in time, we started to understand, we started to see through the first decade of the, the 1900s into just prior to World War II, uh, it almost seemed like by 1909 through till 1914, a lot of the work that these guys were doing is almost like peak strategic golf course architecture, uh, especially when it comes to Harry Colt. It's almost because they didn't have all that technology. They had to be really clever about what they did. And it's almost the, the simplicity and the rudimentary nature of it that makes it so, so good. And I think that's, for me, what really stands out about the early work of these individuals is that they were able to accomplish such good goal using very basic implements, wheelbarrows, shovels in a lot of cases, and just being ingenious. Uh, they were able to create golf courses which have stood the, the test of time. They're still considered to be some of the greatest golf courses in the world.
They just had to be ingenious. And if they had something that was really good, then they would just leverage it. They would get everything they could out of it. How do you take that piece of land? How do you find 18 holes? And how do you make them all work? Um, but again, there's just those, the, the ability to, to understand why they work and how they work. Um, and that even if something breaks the mold or breaks the rules, that it doesn't mean that it's not good. And I think the ability to, to evaluate golf on its merits individually, whether it's good or not, is a way to get a lot more enjoyment out of your golf and to enjoy lo- uh, golf on a, on a different level. So I've been fortunate to travel a little and see a smidgen of some of the best. However, my back catalogue of golf courses pales into insignificance when compared to someone like Mike Clayton, who knows the Doak scale inside out and is well-placed to assess how some of the best courses in the Netherlands match up to worldwide golf. As a little bonus, there's also a wee little story here about Lee Trevino at the Rosendahl Golf Club in Arnhem and a, a putter that his missus purchased. The Hague's a you know, top-tier English links course, probably. Perhaps not Royal St. George's good, but certainly better than Birkdale. So, you know, way up there. Um, in Australia, uh, Japan and The Hague would be top 10 courses, probably. C- certainly close to that. Yeah, yeah, they'd both be top 10 courses in Australia, I think. Um, so certainly top 15. Eindhoven, restored or rejuvenated would be absolutely a top 10 course in Australia. Eindhoven's, uh, you know, I walked around there with Frank. I think that place is... You know, if you gave Mike DeBreeze a dozer and a, and, a, and a three months rebuilding a few greens and redoing the bike ring, that place would be phenomenal, I think. That's a fantastic course just waiting to be uncovered there. I mean, it's really good now, but that's more fun time to pan level for sure. So it's, you know, they're, they're all top 100 or potential top 100 courses in the world, which now is really good. When you look at what's gone into the top 100 since Sandhills, you know, all the courses in Bandon and Nova Scotia and Bamboogle and um, you know, the prize head, the best of the new courses in America, the quality of the top 100 in the world is phenomenally better than it was 30 or 40 years ago. Rosendale? Yeah, it was where Lee Trevino, I heard Trevino tell a story on a podcast or something only a week ago where his wife, he was bitching and moaning about his putter and his wife went and bought a putter in the pro shop at, at Arnhem because it was a ping. And she said, don't all the best putters use pings? You know, so she went and bought this ping putter out of the pro shop at Rosendale where he said it was about six degrees upright and they had about six degrees too much loft on it. So he smashed it on the ground to flatten it and smashed it on the ground to get the lot, get the loft off it. And then went and won the PGA at Shoal Creek with it about three weeks later. But, yeah, I mean, golf in that part of the world is people flock to Ireland and Scotland to play golf, you know, Americans and Australians and everywhere else, but no one really does that Holland, Belgium, France trip, which is, if you can get access to those courses, it's, it's a fantastic trip. 
So you're probably wondering, um, okay, so how much is the green fee? How much is it, is it going to cost me? So many of the locals in Holland think that the green fees are pretty expensive. However, I can assure you that compared to the current rack green fee rates in Ireland and the UK and indeed further afield, the green fees in the Netherlands compare very favourably. Most, if not all, of the green fee rates at particular golf courses are listed on the websites of the courses. And for us English speakers, most of the websites have English version variants. So, just a couple of observations on this particular subject. Royal Hague was the most expensive green fee that I paid, but it is very competitively priced when compared to green fees at similarly ranked courses in the UK and Ireland. I didn't play Bernardus, the host venue for the last number of Dutch Opens. I believe they offer a member for the day rate of 185 euros. It's an interesting test by all accounts on land which was once Heathland, historically converted to agricultural land and then reconnected once again with Heathland heritage as part of its uh, construction process. Failing that, the majority of other tier one green fees in the region of 160 euros per person. One snip in terms of value is the reversible nine hole Lynx Valley course in Armello. Visit a rate of 41 euro and 50 cent for nine holes. So be aware that only one direction of it is in play on, on most days. It really is intriguing to see what Frank Punt and Connor Walsh have created. Come to think of it, it might be a good idea to let Frank introduce us to the very interesting story behind the Lynx Valley project. This was a site owned by a, a blue-blooded family, or at least a rich family. They had this big estate, what was it, 600 acres. It takes a lot of money to run such an estate. So they were looking for ways how they could run the, the estate. And so the first way they found that just after the war was to dig sand. They had this hill, the Ullerberg means the, the mountain of Uller. And they, so they, they dug off the whole mountain and just sold the sand that, you know, that was still allowed in those days. Then they had a pit and the sand is gone. So what do you do next? Well, then they said, okay, well, we can fill it with rubbish. So they made it a rubbish pit. And they filled the, the hole for about, I would say, 60%. And then the government stopped it and said, well, you know, you've done enough. We can't do any more rubbish filling. So they had a half-filled pit and rubbish bin. And they're like, what are we going to do with this? And I said, well, you can put a golf course in there. Yeah, I was approached because one of the members thought that that was possible. I looked at it. It's, yeah, it's great. It's small. It's only 25 hectares. So that's what, 50, 60 acres. So you can only put nine or 12 holes in it. But you have 20 meter height difference and it's pure sandy soil in the places where it's not covered. And then the, the garbage pit was, the, the garbage uh, dump was, was covered with two meters of pure sand. So, yeah. So effectively, we started talking, talking, talking. The family in the end didn't want to take the risk of building a golf course. By that time, I was thinking, I can only build nine holes. This is in the middle of the biggest heathland in the Netherlands. And so it's unique that we ever was a, were able to build a golf course there. Um, and I thought, okay, well, let's maximize the nine holes. And I was, this was like 
say 2008 somewhere. I was reading again Simpson's book, and and in the in the appendix in the in the end, it talks about the reversible course, the principle of a reversible course, which he built for a couple of uh, dukes and, and barons in France because he had some clients in France with a lot of money and and an estate, and then it's very smart to do that because you can just you know double the number of holes that you have. So when I was reading that, I thought, hey, that's something I could use. And that was interesting. So I went on to Golf Club Atlas. We, I, I wrote it down. It was very interesting to then, I think it was Tom Doak who says, I'm not sure that that would work. You wouldn't get, you know, one loop would be better than the other. And then it took me another 10 years to build it. And four years later, he built loop. So it was interesting. He obviously had read the same book. And uh, I think he, he got thinking about it. And uh, so it's interesting. You still read the discussion on Golf Club Atlas if you, if you type it in. So, yeah, it took a long time. Like anything in the Netherlands, if you want to build a new course, especially in a sensitive area like this, it took us almost, yeah, 15 years. And then the reversibility is, I think it works especially for a nine-hole course. I think uh, the loop is in Michigan is 18 holes. Well, if you have the space, that's good. But I think it works better with nine because you can then, you know, you have nine holes, less space. It would work very well in a lot of urban areas. So we've been definitely, I've built one in the Netherlands, which is Erleberg. I think it's, people like it. It's, it was ranked highly. It was in one of the you know, number 19 in the golf magazine of the world, the top 50 uh, nine old courses in the world. People go there. It's completely different you'd expect from the Netherlands because it's got a lot of height differences. And what you do get is when you play in the, the other direction, it's a completely different golf course. And that's what people like about it. Is so from an access and a booking perspective, we must remember that most Dutch clubs are indeed private members clubs that facilitate limited visitor access strictly by arrangement and subject to availability. So if you're looking to arrange a game, a nice email or letter to the caddy master or secretary's office will be high on the initial to-do list. In my experience, they are very responsive and keen to facilitate visitors if and when they can. Be aware that not all courses will facilitate both weekend access and larger groups. Most clubs seem to be busier during the morning with the afternoon being somewhat less busy. It's really down to, I suppose, what I saw in that most members appear to like playing nine and then coming in and going about their, their day's activities. So, once again, just to stress the point that larger groups can only be accommodated by strict arrangement. Something else to be aware of with regards to the Canemar Golf and Country Club in Zandvoort. So there's 27 holes there with 18 being the original Harry Cole tolls. The original Harry Cole tolls may not always be in play insofar as the club operates a rolling 18 on a daily basis. So if you want to play the original Cole 18, you should check with the club and work to their schedule in terms of when it will be available for visitor play. You're likely to be flying in and out of Schiphol, which is one of the better airports in terms of connectivity and navigation and all those important head-wrecking things when they're not right. The Dutch drive on the right-hand side of the road. The motorway access is exceptional. And the Dutch are really good drivers, which is always useful. They have a great command of the English language, as you would probably and 
probably have experienced, uh, even though it is their second language, watch out for cyclists. You need to understand that there are a lot of them and they ultimately appear to have right of way. Also watch out for traffic signage in Dutch town centers and cities. Now the motorway driving is a breeze, however it can get more interesting in town centers where it's a little bit busier, but there's also a preponderance of arrows, Dutch words and signage that may be difficult or impossible to understand fully. So a couple of do's. Do consider, I can't stress this enough, playing the Lynx Valley, the reversible nine-hole course in Armello, at least once. Ideally, if you can hang around for 24 hours and play it back the other way. Do have lunch or have a drink on the terrace at Hilversum, Royal Hague, Lynx Valley in Japan. Do have a cheesecake at Nordvik. You're on holidays, why not? It's also very good. Do engage the members. In my experience, they're, uh, they're a friendly bunch. Golf tragics everywhere. Do check out the club libraries at Royal Hague and Nordvik. There's some really good stuff there. Uh, most certainly do find some Argentinian steak if you find yourself in Amersfoort. Consider staying in either Castile Wittenberg or The Hague or the Beach House Hotel in Zandvoort. They're both located very conveniently for golf at Royal Hague or indeed the Kenimer. And finally, in terms of dues, do bring proof of handicap, whether that's your app on your phone, a handicap letter from your golf club, that's generally a requirement. So I've been fortunate to get to both the Netherlands and the Surrey Heatlands this summer. In both locations, I was struck by the functionality and user-friendliness of the clubhouses that I encountered. From the connectivity between the 14th green and the clubhouse terrace at Woking, to the similar vibe that pervades Royal Hague, Kenimer, Hilversum, and the pun. You know, endeavouring to keep a conversation with Mike Clayton on track is a wonderful chore. Before the end of our recent conversation, I was able to get this nugget out of him on golf clubhouses and golf club life in Holland more generally. Enjoy. I love the clubhouse in Holland. I think the Hagues are my favourite clubhouse in the world. Aside from Morfontaine, probably, but I mean, they're beautiful clubhouses. They're much, they're smaller, but those semicircular bars at, at the Pan and the Hague, the, the, the kind of, sort of lounge chairs and, and, and the lounge kind of, you know, in Australia, we just build big square rooms with tables in the middle as a generalization. And the Europeans just, I mean, St. Norman Botesh is an amazing clubhouse. Not a great course, but an amazing clubhouse. Um, the Europeans do clubhouses beautifully because they're not just big square rooms with tables in the middle of them. They're much more like stately homes, I guess. I mean, I'm not an architect, like, or I'm not an architect or, or interior designer. And I don't know what I like, but when I get in a room that I like, I kind of, I know what I like. And I love those courses in, in Holland. And what I loved about Japan, which is something you would never see in Australia, I've come back and told a bunch of people about it. We were walking around the golf course and two things happened. We ran around, we ran across three of the greenkeepers playing golf on a golf course, which you never see in Australia, certainly not in the middle of the day. 
or two o'clock in the afternoon or three o'clock in the afternoon. So three of the ground staff were playing on the golf course. We finished and went to the clubhouse before they did. They came into the clubhouse and sat down and had a beer and you would never see that in Australia. You would never see one of the staff, one of the ground staff going into the clubhouse. You would, one, you would never see them playing the golf course. Two, you would never, ever see them going to the clubhouse to have a drink. And then as we were sitting down, there was a guy sitting next to us around the bar dressed as a golfer would dress, and three of his mates walked in in jeans. It's like, this is a revelation. You would never see that in Australia, ever. Well, you, well, you would. There's a club near here, Sorrento, which is a very blue blood club on the Moynton Peninsula, jeans in the clubhouse. If you walked into Royal Melbourne or Metro or Kingston in a pair of jeans, they would flip out. It was like, what are you thinking about? So, you know, that's the thing I loved about the clubhouse was people can wear what normal people wear when they're not playing golf. They can go into the clubhouse in a pair of jeans and the ground staff, and I think, it, I think it's incredibly important the ground staff play the golf course because if you don't play the golf, you don't see stuff that you see when you're playing. Well, there you go. The gospel according to Michael Clayton. Generally speaking, I usually find it quite difficult to disagree with most of what he says. And this occasion was no different. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time for a expose on the grounds for golf in Holland. And now for a public service announcement. It has only really dawned on me how much additional work goes into this sort of format when compared with my usual output. I expect that we will intersperse the remaining DocuPod episodes with some more traditional fare. If you like what you hear, please continue to recommend, to like, to share, and to review. All additional interest and efforts are greatly appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing. Yeah, everyone says golf's a mental game, and it, in part of it. I mean, I think it's a, it's a very technical game. The better your technique is, the better you're going to play. But you know, the mental challenge of the game is dealing with its inherent unfairness and you know, causes it to try and drive out the unfair, quirky part of the game, drive out having to deal with the unfair, quirky part of the game. And that's kind of the, you know, Nicholas and Jones and Hogan and Savvy and you know, the great players, Faldo, Tiger were the ones who dealt with the unfairness of it because that's its challenge really and it's why St Andrews is so great because you've got to deal with the unfairness of it and the shitty stuff that happens to you that's why it's so much fun and so cool you know so and so and if you try and beat that out of a golf course then I think the game loses something for it
why it's, you know, it's so relevant to the sandbelt in Melbourne, because Mackenzie came and you know, did what he did. And then we pitched for a couple of jobs this week, and all this. I've spoken at a couple of lunches, and they did some terrible things to it. When Commonwealth dug up the seventh and the first, two of the best holes in the course, and for completely spurious reasons, and Yarra Yarra dug up two of Alec Russell's best greens because there weren't enough pit places on them. Well, they've been fine for 70 years, and they were perfectly fine, but. You know, you get some guy in there who decides that you know, there aren't enough pin places on the fourth green, so he just destroys it. Fortunately, Tom don't restore it. And, you know, Metro sold, my club sold, or, or lost nine holes to the government. So the government, you know, the word was it was compulsively acquired by the government to put a school on it, but no one's ever been able to satisfactorily explain why they couldn't put the school on the market gun. And Bill led the golf course where they put the school, and you know, I mean, Victoria did some horrible things to that golf course. I mean, we, we restored it. John Sun and Bruce Grant and I restored that place over 25 years. But um, if they'd never touched the course that was left to them in 1932, there would have been nothing to do. So you know, in, in Holland, they've done a great job of preserving Colt's legacy largely so you know whether it's truly understand how great what they've got is or they just know not to mess with it or whatever but you know it's not guaranteed that people won't mess these places up and you know in pitching for the job at Woodlands it's you know there's not they've preserved that golf course really well over the years and you know arguably almost the best preserved sandbar golf course aside from Royal Melbourne and Partly, the, in big part, the job of the Arctic is to say no to committee whims and, you know, some guy gets in the committee and decides that the eighth hole's too hard and he's going to shorten it or that, you know, that you know, we need some more trees down the left side of the sixth to make the hole harder or, or, or whatever. You know, it, 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 it takes a lot of will to resist 70 or 80 years and generations and generations of new members and new committees to, to change stuff. And, it, and it's not easy just to leave it alone. And, you know, as I said, the role of the architect is to, you know, sometimes the most important role the architect have is just to say, no, no, you're not doing that. And here's why you're not going to do 